0: Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? and burn ones at that. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you in anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So on the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your wives, your daughters, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another and the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Marcia, for reading. Good morning once again. That was for those of you uh, here this morning and for those of you following following us online uh, watching online this morning, that was just the most important part of the service and it is, and it will always be because that is god 's word. Um, I, I sat there when I was listening to this, obviously, <clears throat> I had to study for this, right I can 't just come over here and swing it, and so i've obviously i've read through this text multiple times and uh and as I sat there, it, you realize that it is true that God's word is always living because you always get something new out of it. And I sat there just thinking, oh, what a, what a, what a tough job to be able to try to, com- to convey God's word in so many verses in just a short amount of time. So we're gonna do that this morning. Um, somebody once says that um, there, there are uncertain things in this life, but there's one thing that you can be certain of, and that is opposition. That is opposition. I don't know who the philosopher was, but that is honestly true. If you have a job, you probably face some opposition in there. Maybe you you bring forward an idea, and your idea gets shut down, even though you think your idea is great. If you have uh, a marriage, sometimes there's a little bit of friction. And there's opposition from both sides. Maybe you don't do something that's going to be damaging to our family. That's a good thing. But maybe there's some opposition in the sense of, you just don't see things the same direction. If you have families, you might share some, some, some principles that do not apply to the other member, but applies to you. So how do, how do you deal with conflict in that sense? How do you, how do you go from working through the, the obstacles that God allows us to actually face in this life? Nehemiah and his people will go through a tremendous challenge here in, in Nehemiah chapter four as they attempt to rebuild the wall. But this is nothing new for them. If you look at the history a little bit, you go to Ezra chapter four and you realize that uh, the people had already faced opposition from other members outside of the community. You go to Nehemiah chapter two and you realize there's opposition in there. And now there is an opposition from outsiders that will influence the inside of the camp and how they actually see this whole project that God has given to them. So, Here's where we are. In your notes, we're going to start this morning by just understanding and living in the midst of opposition and discouragement and how Nehemiah, through the Holy Spirit, lays out this process for us here. And the first point is the enemy's attempt to ridicule the work of God, the work of God. Now, Nehemiah clearly stated in verse 1, if you can read it again with me, now when Sambalah heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became very angry. And quite upset. The text even says in verse 2 that he uh, he derided the Jews and in the presence of his colleagues in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they be left to themselves? Will they again offer sacrifices? Will they finish this in a day? Can they bring these burn stones to life again from piles of dust? Now, in, Simbala, in Simbala's mind, he, he's actually prepared to bring opposition because he doesn't like of what God is actually doing through the Jews. He doesn't like the idea that God's going to come over and is going to use his people to rebuild the wall, and now Simbala is going to be outside of this, and he says, I, I, the math doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make sense here. I like how things are. But here's what, he, here's what happens, and this is where I think the first discouragement comes in, and as a Jew, if you try to put yourselves in their shoes, you didn't have to go very far to realize that there was discouragement all the way around. The only thing you needed to do was to actually look at the wall. To look at the wall. Because the wall, in a sense, represents their past failures. They went in captivity because of their sin. God punished them by allowing the Babylonians to come and take them because they would not repent and go back to living for the Lord. So now they're back in there and they have to rebuild this wall, which is a massive project, and they look at it and they realize, whoa, there's tremendous past failures here. There's history here between us and our past generation and the reason why we're back here trying to work on this. So Sembala and Tobai and his buddies didn't have to discourage the people. The people found encouragement every morning when they woke up to do the work. They realized, oh my goodness, now I have to fix the reason why we were in captivity. So that's the first discouragement. And I think that can be a discouragement to us as well. We don't have to look forward. We don't even have to look to the present. We can just look back and realize there's some nasty stuff in there that can be huge discouragement to us. And just as the wall was to the Jews, there's things in our lives that were discouragement and will bring discouragement to us. Now, The second discouragement comes from the verses we just read. Listen to verse 2 and 3. I'm not going to read them again, but this, this is where the discouragement comes in, and I call this present friction. Now remember, I just mentioned to you there's some things in the past that were discouragement. Now there's some things that are present in their lives, and it will cause friction. And it comes in the form of five questions. Now, I don't know about you and where you come from, But I know that when somebody sometimes doesn't have really good intentions, they might ask questions in the the reasoning of bringing you down. Or maybe if you work for the Lord or in your gospel witness, whatever that may be, to make sure that you know that you are not up here, that you need to come down here. And this is what's gonna happen here. Simbala does something very clever Listen to what he says. Here's the first question in verse 2. What are these feeble Jews doing? Now, the Jews knew that they were feeble. They knew they were not a big nation at this point. They didn't have the strength to accomplish the task by themselves. They needed the work of the Lord. So Simbaal is actually bringing something to them that, that, that shouldn't be a big thing, but he minimizes their ability. He's saying, listen, My first question is, I'm going to minimize your ability. I'm going to say everything I can to minimize your ability to accomplish something. And that is exactly sometimes what happens to us. The questions that we hear are sometimes questions to minimize our abilities in order to accomplish something or do something to the honor and glory of God. Look at the second question. He says this, will they be left to themselves? And the goal here is actually to challenge their ambitions to cast doubt on the effort that they're putting forth in order to accomplish God's task. Then he says, will they again offer sacrifices? He's mocking them in their optimism to be able to once again offer their sacrifices to the Lord that has rescued them. And isn't that, honestly, one of the tools that the enemy actually uses in our lives sometimes? To be able to mock our relationship with the Lord? That is not true. Do you believe in a God who was risen from the dead? And then he says this, will they finish this in a day? Can they really do this? He attacks their enthusiasm. The work's too much for you. Remember, you are not gonna be able to accomplish it. And then he undermines their confidence. Can they bring these burned stones back to life? Now, if, you, if you're aware of this, stones can be damaged by fire, but they don't really burn. But when you're discouraged, it doesn't matter what the other person says. You might actually interpret that completely different. And what they're saying here is that, can you resurrect what's pretty much dead in here? And the answer is no. And the answer for us is no. We don't understand that. We can't bring those things to life, but we know the one who does. Now, a commentator says this psychological warfare can, u- can often use truths to which people are sensitive to, or have truths, or even falsehoods to intimidate the enemy. And that is true for us. That can be easily said about all of us, and that's exactly what Simbala is doing here. But here's, here's the thing, Simbala is not by himself now. He's going he's gonna to collect his buddies. And you always find this interesting because if you, can, if you can win an argument, you also find somebody else who can give you a little hand, right? And look what Simbala, Simbala says and, and does through Tobiah here in verse 3. He says, if even a fox were to climb up on what they are building, it would break down their wall of stones. Now, as a kid, one of my favorite activities was actually to build little forts. And going to my grandparents' house, which was... A delight for me, he used to have those 100 and 120-pound bags of corn, and after he used it, we, we, we would use those to cover our forts. But everybody was smart enough, all the cousins were smart enough to realize you cannot climb on, top, on, a, top, on, a, on a piece of cloth, especially on top of a roof that's not made for you to use it as something that's going to sustain you. Now, that's pretty much what's going on here. Hey, if I put, my, if you, if I put the little fox in here, this thing's going to collapse. Probably they're exaggerating a little bit, but they, what they're saying here is their construction ability was worse than mine as an eight-year-old working with piece of cloth. And sometimes the enemy's going to argue things like that in our lives. He's going to use things to discourage us. Now, the irony here, and I find this fascinating, The irony here is that Tobiah's name means Yahweh is good. And listen to this. Tobiah is neither good here nor he represents a good God. And that's often where discouragement comes from. Now look at verses 4 and 5. Nehemiah requests to the Lord, which is always a good thing. Let me just clarify this. He says this, and I'm going to read here for you, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Return their reproach on their head. Reduce them to plunder in the land of exile. Do not cover their iniquity, and do not wipe out their sin from your sight for they have bitterly offended the builders. Now, every opposition that God allows to bring in our lives, I believe, I believe, it's an opportunity for us to not only depend on him, but to also grow, grow in our relationship with him. How we see life, how we face the challenge, how God dictates how we're supposed to take one step after the other. Because at the end of the day, he is a light unto my feet, right? Well, what happens here is that this is the third prayer in the book of Nehemiah, and this is not a really nice prayer. This is called an imprecatory prayer, which means that Nehemiah is actually praying that God would allow curses to, to come upon those, those individuals, and, and the, the, the prayer is not a very kind one. Now, I suggest to you that if somebody ever prayed that to, to you, that you might want to, whatever that's happening, you might want to find a, a way of getting a, a solution going here, maybe asking for repentance or, or repenting from, from, from something that's been, been done. But this is, this is a, a very harsh prayer, and there's two major requests here. The number one is that the Lord might see their condition. And it's clear because it says, we're, we're despised, we are your people. And our condition is a condition that's not very healthy right now especially as we approach the work of the Lord. And number two is that the Lord might see not only their condition, but the Lord might judge the enemies. Now, there's a few things here as we go through this prayer. First one is he says, and that's the first request, return their reproach on their head, which means he desires that God will give them what they've prayed for the Jews. Now God, take care of that. Second, he says, reduce them to plunder in the land of exile. They knew exactly what it looked like to be in, a, to be in exile, to come from a, a land that's, that's not theirs. So Nehemiah could have requested, once again, he could have said, hey, King Artaxerxes, this is, the, this, is, this is what's going on here. People are oppressing us. We need help. You gave us permission to be here. Now, would you come and assess this situation and help us? But he doesn't go to the king of Persia. He goes to the king of kings. And here's an application, I think, comes out of this, which is not only applicable, but it's, it's needed in my own life, because the people of God should never regard prayers, they're less resort, because we have an access to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, we don't have to go to the president of this country or the state senator or whatever that condition may be, may, may be. We can approach the king of kings and the lord of lords always at any time. And Nehemiah does that, and he knows that. And third, he says, do not cover their iniquity and do not wipe out their sins from your sight. Ouch. Here's what the prayer really means. A commentator shares three points, and I think that's fascinating. First first of all, it's for God not to cover their enemy's iniquity, which means not a prayer against Sambala's salvation. Number two, for God to act, not for permission to take personal vengeance here. Do you see what he's doing? God, it's in your hands. And number three, for God's work to be honored because opposition to God's work is in opposition to the Lord. So that's why it says, so we rebuilt the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half of its size. The people were enthusiastic in the work. Now, the rebuild of the wall means here that they actually chose, they make A choice. instead of looking at the opposition on this side that was coming out from the outside, they chose to look for the Lord and say, we will do this because the Lord is our God. And isn't that true that in life sometimes when we're in the middle of difficult situations, we can choose to either focus on the problem, on the opposition, instead of focusing on the one who has the solution and the answers? I think we can all come here and say that we have done both and we realize that this side of going to the Lord is way easier at the end, looking back, than staying in this tough situation where we are sometimes. Now, this is why this passage is hard. And so listen, just listen to me for a second. In life, there's something that I call like the, the halfway point, right? You, you, you get a job, the job is good, then, as you progress, things begin to get hard and you feel like you're halfway through this and you're like, I want to go back there, but I can't because now i got a family to support and i got to keep moving forward. Or sometimes you're in a relationship and your relationship is good here and you begin to move forward and all of a sudden you're like, I can't get out of this, but it's really bad and I can just, you, you feel like that constant tension on both sides. You feel like the Israelites, they come from Egypt and it, life was terrible there to the point that they... Cried out to the Lord and help us, help us. And God does the helping. And halfway through in the wilderness, they said, We want to go back there. That is the tension of the halfway. That is, that is the, the difficulty of this. You're not in the promised land yet, but you're not in exile anymore. You feel like you're stuck in the uncomfortable position that is when. That's exactly where things begin to get really dangerous for us, because we're not even moving forward or not even moving backwards. We're just stuck. Now, guess what happens to the Jews? Verse 7 through 9. Here's what it says. When Sembala Tobai and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem had moved ahead, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. Now, do you remember in verse 1 what Simbala was? He was very angry and very upset. So now the poison is spreading not only from Simbala but to all the people here. They're feeling the way he's feeling. He's bringing his buddies along and saying, listen to this. This is what's going on here. Now they're all in the same boat saying, let's do it, and we're all angry together. Verse 8, all of them conspire together to move not only Simbala and Tobiah anymore, but all of them now move with armed forces against Jerusalem to create disturbance in it. So we pray to our God and station guard to protect against them both day and night. Now you see the enemies here. You see what's going on in the wall. You see now they are surrounded. And Pastor David mentioned this a little bit in the past. And now they're surrounded from all sides. They have people from the north, they have people from the south, they have people from the east and west all surrounding them. It's not only two individuals anymore, it's everybody against a small group of Jews rebuilding the wall. Symbolic's reaction here is, is, is fascinating that his anger still dominates the text. First, he, he's upset because the work hasn't stopped. And that's usually what happens. The outside and those who are opposed to the gospel sometimes we will continue to oppose because we haven't stopped being believers in the gospel, proclaiming the message. And second, he, he ridicules them because the stop the, the work has not stopped yet. And so it's not going how Simbala expected. And expectation here, when it's ungodly, it's not only dangerous, but affects every single one around them, and it has affected certainly all the nations that were surrounding here, all the people group that were surrounding the Israelites. Now this is called, what I call this snowball effect, and you call that as well, when anger leads to mockery and ridicule, and then ridicule leads to threatening and more anger, which in fact contaminated not only Sambala, but also all the other men. So here's my, 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 my plead for you this morning is that you must be careful with the things that you hear, because according to the text here, there's three times that the word he heard, he heard, he heard, is exposed in here. Simbala heard certain things that didn't, he didn't like, and that became a poison inside of him that pushed him to be in opposition to the Jewish people. And I think that should be true for our lives. Do we filter things the way that we're supposed to? Do we bring those things before the Lord? Or we just say, yeah, I heard something, and then all of a sudden that becomes becomes a, a continual exposure of something that's technically not good. What is fascinating about this is this, about this text, is that the people chose in this text right now what was best. Verse nine, they chose to pray. Verse 9 says, but we pray to our God and we station a guard to protect against them both day and night. Their response was appropriate. Listen to this. It was prayer and precaution. It was prayer to the Lord and work for the Lord's sake. They trusted the king of kings, like I said, instead of trusting the king of Persia which leads them to our next part, which is the prophet speaks to encourage the people, or Nehemiah speaks to encourage the people. Now, here's a personal question for you. What is worse, outside or external opposition or internal discouragement? Usually one leads to the other. And this is exactly what's going to happen right now. Nehemiah says the strength of the laborers, look look with me in verse 10, says this, Then those in Judah said the strength of the laborers has failed. The debris is so great that we are unable to rebuild the wall. And this is the first time or the second time that we see this being done here. Not only do we have past failures that are discouragements, we have present friction, but we also have what we see here in verse 10, intense fatigued. Intense fatigued. The exhaustion, the burnout feeling, the the stumbling physically, which literally that's what it means here. Low energy. When When you become exhausted physically, you begin to tell yourself lies. You worry about things that normally would not bother you. You play mind games to yourself. You tell yourself stories. And those stories usually begin to distort reality for you. And what happens next is that you lose. You lose, listen to this, divine perspective. That's when you say what the Jew said in verse 10 in the second half. He says, the debris is just too much for us. We are unable that is when you raise the flag and says, I give up. We also see constant frustration in verse 10 as well, which is, if the only thing that we say to ourselves is that we are unable to do this, then we'll end up believing that very lie instead of believing the truth that God has already established in our lives. Let me give you an example. of how I think this applies in my life. When I was in college, um, it took me two years to decide my major. So if you haven't decided your major as a, as a college student yet, I'm not going to blame you for it, okay? I know, I know what it feels to be in that position. So going into my junior year, I realized God was calling me into ministry, so I applied to become a Bible major at Cedarville, and, and and I started to choose some of my classes. So I was, at that point, terrified to actually do any kind of public speaking or presentation or anything like that. So I go to my classes and I get there, and the first thing that I do is I, I, I grab the syllabus, and I sit there, and as the teacher is actually talking, I'm sk- skimming through really quick here, and before he can even say anything about a project or a presentation that's gonna be done, I'm, I'm out of there. Because, because looking back for me, it wasn't so much the fear I'm not able to do this, it was the fear that I believe I'm not good enough. I'm just not good enough to be here. I don't speak the language as good as they do. Like, they all grew up in Christian homes. I, 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 just, I became a believer 18 months ago. And then years went by, and then I began to think about this. It's like, whose voice was that? Do you, do you see the connection here? that there are certain things that will lead you to believe what is not true. And for me, it was, I am not good enough. I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't go to church. I didn't went to Sunday school class. I don't know what that looks like. Verse 11 and 12. Our adversaries also boasted, this is amazing here. They just don't give up. He says, before they are aware, or anticipate anything, we will come in among them and kill them. And we will bring this work to a halt. So it happened that the Jews who were living near them came and warned us repeatedly. Some translations actually say 10 times about the schemes that they were plotting against the Jews. Now, first, there's a fear of... What is unexpected here, right? Well, they're going to kill us? Well, when's that going to happen? Are, are, are they going to come in the morning? Are they going to come here when we change shifts? When is, when is that situation going to happen? When, when is the pressure going to be on? And then second, the Jews who leave, live near them actually came in and constantly bothered them to say, hey, there's something dangerous that's about to take place here. Now, what they couldn't realize, and by that point we cannot realize, is that God was going to use those Jews who were being annoying in their eyes to actually allow them to, clever, to make a clever plan of how to engage the situation. Because later on we'll see that God is the God who fights for us. And He was working this problem all the way behind the scenes without the Jews ever realizing that God was already doing this. Here's another fear. And this is the fifth one in our study. The fear of the unknown. Now, when will the attack take place? When will they come? We talked about the answer. Someone actually says the oldest and strongest emotion in mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. It paralyzes you, it changes your thought process, your body functions, your sleep patterns, it alters your heartbeat, your metabolism, your organ functions. Now, when I was in college as a senior, I I, I stood up to to something I believe was true. And um, as I go into my last semester, I'm a basketball player, I'm playing basketball in there, I'm 212 pounds, and I start to face some opposition based on the things that I believed. And by the time I graduated, only three and a half months after that, I was 183 pounds. Now, opposition sometimes will cause you to to think about things that you would not think about before. I wasn't hungry. I couldn't think very well. I had memorized verses. That's the only thing I was doing. I was going to the Lord. All of a sudden, I'm like 29 pounds lighter than I was before. It will do that to you, and that's why the foundation here is the essence of moving forward when we face anything like discouragement in this life. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here for the people. When Nehemiah charges the Jews in verse 13, listen to this, listen to what he said. So I station the people at the lower place behind the wall in exposed in exposed places. I stationed the people by families with their swords, spears, and bows. He, he, he's putting the plan into motion. He, he gives them two practical steps. First of all, he established a presence in every part of the wall that was actually needed to get work done. And second, Nehemiah posts people according to families. Now, I love all of you here. I don't know most of you very well, but I've got to develop a relationship with you in the last year, and some of you I know more than others. Now, if I were to fight with you, I would like to fight next to somebody that knows me. That makes sense, right? I'm going to fight with my family. Somebody comes over my daughters. I mean, nothing's going to stop me from protecting them. So Nehemiah does this amazing plan. He's like, we're going to put them together by the people who know each other to defend certain places that are, according to the text here in verse 14 and 13, exposed or vulnerable. And that's exactly what he does. And he gives, in this process, three commands. Now, this is a command... That he gives to them, but I think it's applicable to us. Number one, he says, Do not be afraid. Verse 14. I am pretty sure that God has 365 do not be afraid or do not fear in his word. Someone once said that maybe it's one for every day of the the year. I don't know, but here's the foundation. God doesn't want you to be afraid because he is with you. Number two, he says this. Not only do not be afraid, he says, remember, and here's what you remember. You don't remember your great childhood and the memories you had with your grandfather in a situation like this. You, gr- you remember the great and awesome Lord. And then he says, and because of that, you fight The command here is to actually use those three imperatives, not to be afraid, to remember God, and to fight for the purpose of not only accomplishing the task, but to honor God in the process. Because the life itself is not only about the final destination, but it's a journey that takes us there. And he's saying in every single step, remember the Lord, fight for him, and do not be afraid. And here's the really cool thing about this text. When he talks about God's greatness, it is important because it is the Lord who is greater than our problems. It's greater than the opposition that we face. It's greater than the challenge that we will face, that our kids will face, that our grandkids will face. It is greater, he is greater than the the challenge that anybody else has ever faced in human history. Greater than the enemies, greater than the lack of supply baby formulas. He's greater than the discouragement, the situations. He's great in the sense that he's able to control, listen to this, what it seems to be uncontrollable, unstoppable, to to be completely out of reach. He's great in the sense that he's power and he's mighty. He spoke the world into existence. Now when was the last time you spoke anything into existence? just making sure there's no hands up. But we can speak things into edification or we can cause people to stumble. God spoke things into existence. His power is the power that gives life not only to us, but he gives life in abundance through Jesus. And church, do, do we really believe this? It's a nice day outside. Why would you come here this morning? you believe this? I know you didn't come here to hear the guy who has a funny accent, but do we believe his greatness? Now, here's the other thing. He says that he's also awesome because he alone is able to inspire great awe and wonder by the, the, by the deeds of his greatness. He's calling the people to respond to, da, to, to, to him just like David did in Psalm 34, verse 3, and says, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And this is interesting because all, because if the opposition is great, much greater is our God. And that's why verse 15 is significant. Listen to this. It so happened that our, when our adversaries heard, here's the third verse, that we were aware of these matters, God frustrated their intentions. Then all of us returned to the wall, each to his own work. First, the enemies real- realize that God has already done something. Once again, God did something behind the scenes. He allowed the neighbors to hear what the enemies were planning and come over and tell the Jews. And now the Jews are aware of that situation because God is Working behind the scenes, and what they do is they put their hand into the plow and they do the work now, knowing that there is perhaps an attack about to come. So, here's a practical insight for us as a church Nehemiah clearly gives God all the credit for what's taking place here because listen to what he says that they were aware of these matters, but God. Frustrated their intentions. It wasn't anything that we did. It wasn't anything good that we could bring before the Lord. It was God working. And God is the source and the goal of the task set before them. And that should be the truth for us. Now, I want to end this text with three life lessons here. And you have them in your notes. The last seven verses, seven, eight verses here, and you see the people, people's commitment to God's word, and here's what it says, Nehemiah, in verse, uh, verse 16 through 18, from that day forward, half of the men were doing the work, and half of the men were taking up spears, shields, bows, and body armor. Now, the officers were all behind the people of Judah, who were rebuilding the wall, Those who were carrying loads did so by keeping one hand on the work and the other hand on their weapon. The builders, to a man, had their swords strapped to their sides while they were building, but the trumpeter remained with me. So lesson number one, it takes unity of purpose to accomplish God's task, especially when all of us actually have different gifts and abilities which in one way, it's a huge blessing because you don't want to be all like me and I don't want you to all be like me. Remember, Romans 12 says that we are a body and we have many members. So let us, let us have a singular purpose, not only as individuals, but as a body of Christ. Let's walk this life understanding the great and awesome God and walking in unity so that we can accomplish the work that he has for us as a body. Lesson number two comes from Nehemiah 9, four nineteen 19 through 20. It says, I said to the nobles, to the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is demanding and extensive, and we're spread out on the wall, far removed from one another. Whether you hear the sound of the trumpet, gather there with us, or God will fight for us. And here's lesson number two. It takes incredible determination to face the extensive demands of the task and rally together in order to fight for a common cause. To be spread out from each other, to focus on the work without being consumed by fear and remembering the opposition, to so focus on the questions that we have and the answers that are missing in our lives. You need to remember, church, that we can accomplish a God-sized task with a God-sized task determination. And here's the last one. Verse 21 the way to 23. So we worked on with half holding spears from dawn until dusk. At that time I instructed all the people, let every man and his co-workers spend the night in Jerusalem and let them be guards for us by night and workers by day. Listen to what Nehemiah says right now. We did not change clothes, nor I, nor my relatives, nor my workers, nor the watchmen who were with me. Each had had his own weapon, even when getting a drink of water. Here's lesson number three. It takes inevitable sacrifice to develop a servant's attitude and to lay aside our own priorities for the sake of God and his task. Nehemiah includes himself here in the work, and I think what Nehemiah is doing is saying, I am not going to ask anyone to do anything I'm not willing to do. And I've made that as my prayer, that as your pastor, one of them, I hope I'll never ask you to do something I'm unwilling to do. Now, let me finish this really quickly here. Some of you have heard about a man named David Livingstone. He, he suffered much opposition in his ministry. Actually, his wife died uh, in the beginning of his ministry. And some people say he, this man walked about 20, 29, 30,000 miles by foot in Africa as a missionary. I know some of you trade your cars by that point, but that's not the point here. He said these words, Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever, sever me from any tie but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. And I think that's what Nehemiah is doing for his people. He's reminding them of God's greatness and awesomeness. That God has a history and he will never leave us but he will fight for them. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the fact that we can celebrate your goodness to us Father, we thank you for the times that you used in our lives, a little bit of opposition so we could grow. We thank you that your work uh, can only be done when we remember who you are, when we uh, do not fear what is out there, but also we fight for you and we fight for those around us. Father, we thank you for Nehemiah and the testimony that he carries. But once again, we thank you for you. You are an awesome and great God, and you are truly the one who fights for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now you should have received a little cup like this this morning. We're going to celebrate communion right now. If you don't have one, there's going to be some cups being passed down the aisle. And, and, and this is for, for all of us who, who have a relationship, who understand what Jesus has already done for us on the cross, and understand that his sacrifice is the only means of finding salvation with our Heavenly Father. As, as we approach the Lord right now, I, I, the creator of all things, the one who actually fights for us as we just uh, saw this morning, we recognize his power. I would like to give you a minute just to reflect in his goodness. Maybe there's some things in your life that you need to say, God, you know, I, I'm, I haven't dealt with it very well. Maybe there's some opposition. Maybe there's some things that, that you need to bring before the Lord. Maybe there's a forgiveness that you need to ask So I'd like to give you a moment just to reflect on that as we partake communion together. Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that we we sometimes we, we focus so much on the challenges of life and we forget the sacrifice that was done for us in your son Jesus Christ. Father, please forgive us. Help us to understand your love and your grace. And help us to understand the abundant life you have given to us, not only in this life, but in the life to come. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as it took a great sacrifice for Nehemiah to lead his people, it took a greater, even greater sacrifice for Jesus to not only come, but to actually die. Suffer tremendous pain and suffering and loneliness to be bearing and then to rise again so that we could have hope. The Apostle Paul said these famous words in First Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was be- betrayed took blood- bread and after he had given thanks he broke in and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of us, of of me. But it didn't end there. It wasn't just his body that was broken. Paul goes on to say in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this is the cup of of the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do it together. Father, once again, we're thankful for the sacrifice that you provided. We're thankful for the blessing of being your children. And Father, I pray that you would make your love for us not only more abundant, but more visible that we might be able to see, so that we might be able to see you. Father, and help us to live our lives in the midst of problems and opposition that we might be able to honor and glorify you.